Hi, it's Lynn Galadner, and welcome to the Make Meaning Podcast. I'm a writer and entrepreneur, and through decades of writing articles for magazines and newspapers and authoring books, I've learned that we succeed through inspiration from storytelling and deep and mutually beneficial relationships. This show began in 2018 after my father was diagnosed with a terminal illness, and I wanted a way to capture his stories and record his insights. It's grown since then to share stories of how people around the world make meaning from very ordinary pursuits. Now I focus on sharing the stories of writers, authors, and those in the world of publishing to learn how and why we create stories that help us make meaning from the mundane. I'm a former journalist and marketing entrepreneur, and I've been teaching writing for more than two decades. As a writing coach, I help authors build their brands and share their words. I've had eight books published already, and I just finished my second novel, so stay tuned for news about when and where you can read it. If you'd like to write with me, check out my offerings at lynngaladner.com, and you'll find more episodes of this podcast at makemeaning.org, as well as on every podcast platform you can think of. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts. Thank you for tuning in to the Make Meaning Podcast, where you'll find stories of courageous people daring to share their talent with the world. Now, on to the show. Lee Tran graduated from Columbia University in 2014 with a degree in creative writing and linguistics. She has received fellowships from McDowell, Art Omi, and Yado. House of Sticks is her first book. And oh, what a gorgeous book it is. This memoir, which took Lee six years to write, details her journey as a little girl leaving Vietnam as a refugee and making her way to the dark and stormy world of Queens, New York, where she has to learn how to straddle cultures and find a way to succeed on her own terms. This lyrical, compelling memoir is full of the duality we find in the shadowy corners of our families. There is humor and poignancy with a very human story of grappling with heritage, ancestry, and a belief in a brighter future. Well, Lee Tran, welcome to the Make Meaning Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor. Your book is beautiful um, physically and the writing. It's just so nice to speak with such an accomplished author. And I want to begin by just learning more about you, talking about your early years. So tell me, do you have any early memories of Vietnam? You were so young when you came, you know, or is it just the stories you've been told about your homeland? You know, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, um, I actually don't have any memories of Vietnam at all. My very first memory um, is when I, you know, woke up one day in the Thai refugee camps when I was three years old. Yeah, so interesting because it, it must be hard to build those connections to a place that isn't, I mean, probably you have visceral memories, you know, body memories and things like that. But, you know, how have you claimed that, that part of your identity, I guess, in recreating that? Tell me a little bit about that. Sure. I mean, you know, I think um, my identity as Vietnamese is something that is, has always been a huge part of me, Mm -hmm. um, despite not having any uh, early childhood memories of Vietnam, but even in the food, in the language, um, I often find myself feeling a sense of nostalgia and feeling um, drawn to my homeland. Yeah. One of the things that so many Americans from such a variety of origins have in common is this like assimilation of a variety of identities, you know, from the the original place that we say we're from, but then the places we moved through as we migrated, um, the, the first 
places we stepped foot in America, and then how that journey expanded and had twists and turns. And so I'd love to hear a little bit about how you have grappled with your identities and how you've assimilated all of these experiences together to create a sense of where you belong today and and who you are and who you want to be. Yeah. You know, I think, I mean, I, I feel like I've always embodied, you know, multiple identities that were in direct conflict with one another. Yeah. Um, you know, being Vietnamese, but also having this Chinese heritage um, yeah. because my parents' um, ethnicity are actually Chinese. Right. And, um, you know, and they were mocked for being Chinese when they were in Vietnam. And mm. I was born in Vietnam, but I come to America and I'm mocked for my Vietnamese identity. And so it's just um, having to reconcile all three uh, lands at the same time was very difficult. Um and on top of that, I was the only girl in a household full of boys. You know, I, I grew up with three older brothers. Right. Not having any sort of, um, you know, close female sibling um, or even or close female friendships growing up um, was really difficult for me. And so those are also identities that I had to um, work with as I, I grew older. And then we can move on to my identity as a worker and, you know, a contributing citizen, uh, three years old and first coming from Vietnam to America, my first job was, um, you know, being a child sweatshop laborer. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's funny because you, you'd think this is something that uh, would happen in the, you know, 60s, maybe <laughs> yeah, right, definitely right. not in today's time. Yeah. And I would go to school um, later on, you know, when I was five years old, I would go to kindergarten mm-hmm. and I had this identity as a student. And then I would come home and I was a sweatshop laborer. Yeah. And, and those were identities that I had to keep separate, have to sort of code switch in a way. Yeah. It, it is interesting, the, the dark secrets of even contemporary society. You know, um, I come from a Jewish background. And so I heard a lot about the sweatshops and the tenements um, in New York of, you know, my ancestors. And when I actually had the opportunity to go to New York and see what a tenement looked like, and that a lot of sweatshops were in apartments, as opposed to like, this vision I had of this big factory. And, you know, it changed everything. It just, I, I just, I didn't even have words, you know, to try to understand what that must have been like. And so how, how did that shape your, your vision of work and, and also of, of like, I guess where you wanted to go as you grew up, as you like stepped possibly into another world? Yeah. You know, I, it, we often hear about um, uh, this, this notion of the American dream. Yeah. Know that once we come to America as immigrants, we're going to make it um, in yeah. a really big way, a really magnificent way. Um, and yet here we were, we were immigrants and we were um, just straddled with poverty and all these different adversities that we had to overcome. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, working at such a young age, it really forced me to try to understand what my place in the world was. Um, mm-hmm. And I was... Uh, forced to mature at a really young age as well. I had this really strong work ethic that my parents instilled in me. Um, uh, At the same time, I also couldn't um, fit in with the rest of, you know, my, my, my schoolmates. Yeah. Uh, I I didn't realize, well, to begin with, I didn't realize that uh, the other kids weren't doing this. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. How would you, you know? Exactly. 
I remember, um, I think sometime in middle school, I, I walked my friend home once. Um, my parents never really let me hang out with other kids, but uh-huh. I sort of, you know, this is, did this really rebellious thing. And I, I walked into her apartment. I asked her, uh, where are all your work materials? Oh my gosh. And she just looked at me, you know, and yeah. said, what work materials? What are you talking about? And I said, you know, the ties, uh, the cummerbund. She said, I don't know. I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't, I don't make <laughs> And yeah. I think that was a really big moment for me. It was a moment in which I realized, oh, I'm not like the other kids. Yeah. 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 Have you read or seen My Brilliant Friend by Elena Ferrante? No, I haven't, but I've definitely been meaning to, to get on that. Yeah. So I haven't read the books, um, although people have been raving about them for years, but we started watching the first season, which is such a beautifully produced um, TV show. It's, it's almost like a movie, but it's a TV show. And it's um, it's really about female friendship. And it's in um, Naples, Italy, post-World War II, and a very poor, you know, almost really a tenement community, basically. Um, and there are two main characters that are these these two little girls, one of whom is the only girl in a family of boys, and they're working families. I mean, it's it's brutal. It's um, it's it's tough to watch, but it's the friendship that really sustains them and and shows them that the world can be more, um, even as there's envy and you know, feelings of being left out when one can continue in school, one cannot. Um, So, you know, really your story reminded me a little bit of that, um, especially being the only girl in the house, you know. So did you find any, did you find that friends like the one you just mentioned were sort of your first glimpses into there's another way or there's other possibilities? You know, in a way, yes. Uh, I remember um, just sort of feeling like, oh, I think they know something that I don't you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have to learn from them. Um, but at the same time, I was also um, struggling with how to honor my, my family and yeah. how to honor the values that we held. Right. And so I, there were parts of me that didn't, I, I almost didn't allow myself sure. to, to assimilate as much as I could have, because I felt that doing so would be abandoning my roots. Yeah. And, and that's an interesting struggle because I mean, we don't want to turn our backs on our culture, our traditions, our history, and yet we're in this place that has so many different cultures and traditions and histories, and and we want to fit in, especially when we're younger. You know, so it's like, how do you do both? I mean, how do you honor the past and your parents and your family, but but carve out that identity of your own? That's a tough question. I mean, yeah, like how have you come to terms with that? Right, and you know what's what's really difficult is that. Um, not only do you have, you know, your lived experiences that that really inform, uh, you know, how you view the world, but you also have these societal expectations of you, especially being an Asian American. Um, yeah. There's this, this idea of the model minority myth. Yeah. Um, and and that is something that it supposedly is supposed to work in our favor, but for me and for my brothers, um, we didn't fit into this model minority myth. You know, especially as I was going to school um, and my vision started to fail. Right. um, I couldn't do well in school anymore. And I had to also do work outside of school. So that meant not being able to do my homework. Um, Right. Yet again, this was another identity that I failed to assimilate into. Yeah. So I think it would take a really long time for me to really give myself the space to be who I was and to 
uh, liberate myself from all of these expectations that my family, my friends, and also society at large um, had imposed upon me. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a that's a truly universal story because there are so many forces that are you know, expecting things from us, weighing on us, directing us. And some people never have that internal conversation. It, it, it's really hard, you know, to and it's brave um, to, to try to do that and say, I have to decide for me, you know. Um, I'm curious, tell me a little bit about when you started writing and how your family and teachers and friends responded and just take me through sort of your writing journey. Sure. Well, you know, I, you know, I mentioned that I, uh, my vision started to fail at some point. Right. Right. Um, and, and this is when I was in the third grade, the school nurse sent me home with a letter saying that I needed glasses. And my right. father, who was a former prisoner of war suffering from PTSD, he thought that glasses were a government conspiracy uh, to take away my eyesight. Right. Um, and so, you know, you're, you're eight years old and you believe <laughs> everything your parents tell you, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Here I am. I think, okay, oh my goodness, the government is after me. I have to stay from glasses. Oh, <laughs> um, poor you know, kid. You know, from for the next 10 years of my life, I could not see the board in school. Okay. Um, wow. Gosh. It was really detrimental to my, um, my academics. Uh, even associating with friends was difficult for me because I couldn't read people's facial expressions. Um, wow. Oh, but, poor thing. Yeah. To answer your question, though. Yeah. Literature was a, a place that I could retreat to because I could hold a book. I, I discovered yeah. I could hold a book up to my eyes and read yeah. and, and enter worlds in that way. I remember reading in the ninth grade, The Bluest Eye for my English mm -hmm. class. And this is by uh, Toni Morrison. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I just, it so resonated with me. And this, you know, it's about a little black girl who society has deemed ugly Yep. And the only thing that she yearns for is a pair of new blue eyes because she mm -hmm. feels that if she had blue eyes, somehow her value would, as a human being would increase. Right. And here I am, somebody who couldn't see. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, oh my goodness, this is me. I mean, obviously for different reasons, yeah. we, we want new eyes, but yeah. it was so universal in a way, just wanting something that you feel would, would increase your value. I, it was the first time a book had ever made me cry. And so mm. I remember thinking, oh my goodness, it, this is such a powerful feeling. And I would love to one day have the power to make somebody else cry through yeah. words. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's where my writing journey began, really, okay. Um, okay. To, to, to want this power. Yeah. Uh, and then as the years progressed and my eyesight uh, deteriorated, English was the only class that I could do well in. Um, wow. I actually, I didn't need to see the board in order to take down notes. I just yeah. needed to read the text. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, eventually... Uh, when I graduated from high school, my brother bought me a pair of contacts to oh. so that I could see without my parents knowing. Yeah. Um, and so I, I finally somehow made it to college and I, I had a 4.0. Oh my gosh. New contacts. And it was such an incredible feeling. Yeah. But um, at the end of my first semester, I started feeling this tremendous sense of guilt Hmm. Um, and I, I, I thought that I was betraying my parents by, by being able to see, I felt that, uh, oh. my, my success meant, um, basically walking away from them yeah. and rejecting them. Yeah. And so my, by my, the end of my second semester, I, oh, I failed everything. 
And so, oh, oh. yeah, this is, um, you know, so, you know, I, I felt like I, I was making so much progress and then depression set in guilt. Yeah. And I eventually just let go. And yeah. I eventually I dropped out of school. This totally ties into the writing, by the way. Of course, of course. I'm, I'm with you. And, you know, I, it, it took me two years to really pick up all the broken pieces of myself. Mm-hmm. And uh, I actually pretended to go to school for two years. So my parents would never find out that I had dropped out. <laughs> yeah. Eventually I meet somebody who convinces me to go back to school. Okay. Um, I met her at this adolescent health clinic. She was a legal advocate. And she said, Lee, you have such a bright future. Um, I will help you reapply mm-hmm. to colleges. And yeah. one of the colleges that she recommended I apply to was Columbia University. I mean, and, why not? Shoot for the top, right? Like, yeah, come on. Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I just, I laughed at her. I thought, you know, I, I dropped out of school with barely a 2.0 GPA. Yeah. There's no way any school, let alone Columbia. <laughs> and she said, oh, but Columbia has this program designed for non-traditional students. As long as you can explain to them your background and explain why you stumbled, yeah. there's a chance that you might make it. So out of, I, I believe about 10 or 12 schools that I applied to, Columbia was the only school to accept me. Wow. And when I received a phone call offering me a seat at Columbia, the the person on the line said, it was a really difficult decision, actually, Lee, because, you know, your grades are not great, but the board of admissions decided that we would, we wanted to admit you based on the strength of your essay. If you haven't considered becoming a writer, I recommend that you do so. Wow. Oh, she got chills. Oh my God. That's so cool. Um, and so again, you know, there are all these different, um, roads that I've walked that have inevitably always led me back to writing. This is one of them. Awesome. Awesome. So take a long story. (laughs) No, I love it. We, we are storytellers. I love it. It's fantastic. So take me through your process of writing house of sticks, you know, like how did you start it? How long did it take you? Did you, you know, stall? Did you have people giving feedback, writing workshops? Tell me about the process. Um, oh, the process. I mean, well, okay. First of all, I ended up majoring in fiction at Columbia. Nice. Um, and uh, as part of the major, I had to take one course outside of my genre. So I took a nonfiction course. Okay. Um, and that's when I experimented uh, with telling my story. And mm-hmm. uh, actually one of the first chapters in my book, 20,000 Cummerbunds was written in that nonfiction course. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. Um, but you know, one, my second to last year at Columbia, I realized that I didn't have enough credits to graduate by the following year. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I had to take an outside course that summer to supplement my credits. And that's when I found Writers in New York, which was a a course at NYU, a summer course. Okay. Eight credits. Okay. uh, Classic program. Yeah. And I somehow ended up in the nonfiction department. I, well, I, I originally applied for the fiction department and I, I didn't quite love it. So I asked yeah. to switch over. Okay. And the professor there is Saeed Serafazadeh, mm-hmm. incredible writer, but also incredible professor, really engaging. I decided to, you know, email him, reach out and ask um, for his advice on how to be a writer. I forwarded him some pages, actually the, the 20,000 cover buns chapter okay. I had written in my nonfiction course at Columbia. Mm-hmm. And I, I asked for feedback and he wrote back saying, this is a seminar, not a workshop. I actually can't read these pages and give you feedback. That would be unfair oh. to other students. Okay. 
Um, but why don't you come to my office hours and we can chat about your plans as a writer? So I did so. I took him up on that offer and I told him that I was um, hope that I would hopefully write a novel one day that was loosely based on my life as okay. a Vietnamese refugee, former sweatshop laborer, former nail salon technician. And he said, Lee, that is such a fantastic story. He yeah. said, you should keep writing, you know, like yeah. what's, what's there to lose? Yeah. So I, I, I went home that day thinking, wow, that's that's wonderful advice. I, I felt validated. I don't know if it was the next day or the next week, but I received an email from Saeed's agent saying, dear Lee, your professor forwarded us uh, your pages and he oh. would represent you. <laughs> oh, my God. I literally chills head to toe. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Yeah. So um, again, like I said, these roads, you know, just like leading me down this path that I had no idea I would be on. Yeah. Um, so I met with my agent for the first time later that summer. And she said, Lee, I know you said you wanted to write a, a novel, but this has to be a memoir. Mm. It's an incredible story and it's yours. You need to own it. And it's going to be, you know, something that so many people can relate to. Yeah. But I asked her, I said, okay, but I, I have one more year left at Columbia. Could we wait until afterwards? Because I, really, <laughs> I made it here somehow. I have no idea how, but I, I want to do well. Yeah. So I think the day after I graduated, my agent emails me. She said, let's get to work. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's phenomenal. That is phenomenal. Yeah. So, um, so how long did it take you to write House of Sticks? It took me about six years, actually. Oh, wow. um, okay. So from the I, I received my book deal um, uh -huh. shortly after graduating. Okay. And um, then it was just really having to sit down in the dark by myself, grappling with all of these feelings that um, were quite recent. You yeah. know, I felt like I was just emerging from the darkness and I, yeah. I, I didn't have enough distance. Yeah. And so the, the six years that it took me, a large part of it was gaining the distance that I needed to really... Um, look back on my life with the the wisdom and insight that only distance can afford you. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. So <laughs> it's like such serendipity, like, okay, here's here's a deal. And you're like, great, let me just put you on hold. And other people are like, how do I get an agent? It's just very, very cool. So I wonder if there are any writers, you mentioned Toni Morrison, but others that you either modeled after or sort of learned from, like sort of took inspiration because you loved the way they wrote or the, the way they told their stories? Absolutely. Um, Fierce Attachments by Vivian Gornick was mm -hmm. a book that I just loved reading um, as I was doing research for House of Sticks and, and delving into memoirs to learn the craft. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I read Fierce Attachments and I thought, wow, the way that she embodied herself on the on the page Mm -hmm. uh, which was so incredible. It's so breathtaking. Um, mm -hmm. I remember just highlighting so many passages in that book and thinking I would love to be able to write like this. Nice. Um, there's also Maps to Anywhere by Bernard Cooper, also a memoir, but in a non-traditional memoir, it's filled with lyric essays. Um, incredibly poetic and just some of these lines kept me up at night because I just couldn't get over how beautiful they were. Mm. And so I felt like those two books in particular, along with Toni Morrison's The Bluest yeah. Eye, yeah. Um, they were basically my Bibles while I was nice. writing. How, how has reception been for your book? Um, I, I think it's been well, if I may say so. <laughs> yeah, please do. Yeah. Um, you know, it's been listed on um, Vogue and NPR's best books to read. Nice. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think what's been most rewarding for me as a writer um, 
especially because all my life I, I've always yearned to connect with others. Yeah. Um, what's been really rewarding is receiving emails, um, Instagram messages, Twitter DMs. Um, yeah. yeah from people from all walks of life telling me how much my story touched them yeah, um, and how much it resonated with them. And I think that is the greatest gift that an author can receive. Absolutely. Yeah. So what's next for you in writing and in life in general? Um, let's see. Well, in writing, I'm working on a historical novel mm-hmm. at the moment. Um, it's uh, based on the story of the Trung sisters. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Trung sisters. No. Um, not many people have, even though it's a, this is a true story. Okay. Um, based in 40 AD. So we're going okay. way back. Way in time. back, way back. <laughs> okay. And, uh, you know, during this time in Vietnam, this is after centuries of Chinese domination, mm-hmm. two Vietnamese sisters, they join the army and they become generals. In oh the my Vietnamese gosh. Army. And together they lead the first successful revolt against wow. the Chinese imperial army and they take back Vietnam's independence. Oh my gosh. Phenomenal. So cool. Yeah. So from 40 to 43 AD, they reigned as the first queens of Vietnam. And I feel like it's such a beautiful story. So incredibly feminist. Um, yes, for sure. During a time when most people wouldn't really expect it, you know, 40 AD, who knew? Yeah. Um, and so I'm, I'm working on on building out that story. And I, I hope it'll be um, good. Yeah. I hope I can do the story justice. I can't wait to read it. How did you ever stumble upon them? Like, it seems so random. Like, how did you how did you find the story? Well, I think, you know, part it's actually part, a huge part of Vietnamese um, lore. Every okay. year um, in North Vietnam, there's a huge festival oh, wow. um, called the Trunk Sisters Festival. And they're, you know, they're elephants um, because, you know, part, part of the myth, um, and I have to do research for this, but yeah. the myth is that, that they trained elephants to, uh, to go into battle. Um, wow. And that's wow. how they were able to take Chinese by surprise and, and take back, you know, it's independent. Phenomenal. Oh, that's so cool. (laughs) So super cool. Um, That's awesome. By the way, how did your parents respond to to your book? Did they read it? Um, You know, my parents don't read English very well. Okay. um, You know, I've told them bits and pieces of it. And even before writing this book, I told them that I wanted to write this story. It's going to be about my life, but inevitably it includes them. Sure. And I'm I was going to represent them in in their the full spectrum of their humanity. Yeah. Um, and that meant the good and the bad. And sure. so, you know, t- to their credit, they said, Lee, you do what you need to do. Oh. And great. so since then, uh, you know, when they the first time that they held the book in their hands was a really touching moment. It's one that I'll cherish forever. But yeah. I, I felt that for the first time, they could really see me and see what I had been doing for the last, you know, six years of my life. You know, they, yeah. I wasn't just saying that I was <laughs> writing, you know. Yeah. Oh, that's so great. That's so yeah. great. Well, I'm really excited for you. It sounds like, you know, you're really diving into a, a meaty story after producing a beautiful book. And um, I hope there's just one after the next after the next for you. And I'll keep my eye on you and add to my bookshelf. Um, so in closing, you know, I interview a lot of writers on this podcast. And because it's called the Make Meaning Podcast, we talk a lot about, you know, how we find meaning and purpose in work and in life. And and so when I speak to writers, I really talk about like... Um, you know, why they write. And, and, you know, not just because, I mean, I, I'm a writer myself and I'm, I love, I love finding the right words, but like, it doesn't mean I have to put it out in the world. And to me, 
when I share my stories in the world, it's it's a conversation. It's a it's a way of you know maybe it helps someone, but also we can have a back and forth. So I wonder if you have any um, advice on that quest for meaning and purpose through writing that you might leave with our listeners today. Absolutely. You know, I think all my life I've been made to doubt myself. I've been made to doubt my reality and doubt the strength of my voice. Yeah. Um, and so when I first discovered writing and discovered, you know, just the, the unlimited potential for um, celebrating my voice on the page, I thought, wow, you know, like I wish that I could um, really hone this gift to the point where I could really just truly one day connect um, from from my heart to the hearts of others through my words, yeah. Um, and and to encourage and inspire others to to um, empower themselves and empower their voice to believe in their own voice. Yeah. Uh, and now, especially in the wake of all of this anti Asian hate, yeah. um, I think it's it's now more important than ever to tell our stories yeah. and, and to tell to, and to do so unapologetically. Absolutely. Have really strong, powerful Asian voices in the world and and say this is what this is what we need to hear. So amazing. Well, Lee Tran, it's amazing to talk with you. Thank you so much for giving me your time. And it has been such a pleasure to have you on the Make Meaning podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was so wonderful talking to, to you. Thanks for listening to the Make Meaning podcast with Lynn Galadner. You can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you like what you've heard, subscribe and share this episode with the meaningful people in your world. And please leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. You can learn more at makemeaning.org or lynngaladner.com.